I'm Danielle. I'm Brian. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Good morning, sister girl. What you doing? Hey, lady. Well, I'm just sipping my coffee, excited to get into this second part of this story with you today. What's new with you? Well, I had a very interesting day yesterday at the mall. I was very busy. And we had a fan come in. This very we have a fan. Nice, yes, we have a fan. This very nice lady came in. And I'm sorry, I don't recall her name. But she's been in the mall before. And a lovely person. She said, I just wanted you to know that I so enjoy listening to your podcast and you do have one coming out tomorrow correct and I said yes ma'am I do and I said Danielle will be and I will be recording and uh, I gave her kind of a a uh, you know a preview of what we're going to be talking about today Ooh, insider trading (laughs) so she said I just uh, I really enjoy you know your um, your personalities and I enjoy listening to the history yeah. of these cases and uh, the fact that they're up here in the North Georgia area, uh, you know, is, I think it's very personal to her to, to listen to it. And I, I think she has a family that was in law enforcement as well. So it's, uh, it's um, I think it's close to her heart, but I really yeah. appreciated her commenting to me about that and, and um, appreciated her, her listening as I do so many of our listeners. Well, that's a well, yeah, I'm going to keep that little compliment right in my pocket for a day where I need it. That's precious. Yeah, I um, how, sweet. How, how are your chickens today? Oh, well, you know how they say don't count your chickens. I, here's the thing about raising chickens. And we had chickens when we lived in Colorado. But um, I feel like every morning when you walk out to the coop, you just don't know what you're going to see. You know, any any morning could be the morning after, you know, a massacre. You just have no idea. <laughs> so just so many things happen in the chicken coop it's its own habitat it's its own ecosystem in there and we we lost one we lost one of the juveniles so we had um we'd grabbed some new baby chicks from our neighbors uh I guess that was in like April yeah it was when we got back from spring break and I had a sneaking suspicion that four out of the six were gonna grow up to be roosters uh you know it's gonna take a, a few more weeks for us really to figure that out but there were six of them and then we have the big girls in there and the duck and went out the other day the other day and only counted five and so I strapped on my GBI vest in my mind you know I don't <laughs> really have I'm not trying to impersonate an officer here Fran you can't arrest me um okay. be a citizen's arrest at this point in time you don't have an active badge watch out lady but um, I have an old vest you can wear <laughs> oh my gosh I'm totally gonna come try that on so yeah I had to do some investigative work and um you know, walked around and found that, yeah, there was a section of the fence, the chicken wire fence that was unsecured at the bottom. Um, That's the side of the chicken coop that's right up against like a bunch of like thick bramble in between my yard and my neighbors where we have like the original, you know, rusty property line fence from a hundred years ago. And, um, but there was more, there was more investigative work to do because there was actually a couple drops of blood on the inside of the chicken, the pen, right? Right there by the Mm -hmm. fence. And then some of its black feathers. And so I was able to track a trail of, you know, very inner feathers. Uh I didn't see Uh any more blood. It's the weird thing. Feathers, yeah. There was a couple more feathers that went 
under the chicken pen fence, through the bramble, under the property line fence. So, of course, I went over to Josh and Tabitha's house. They don't mind. I'm in their backyard all the time looking at their goats and stuff. I'm I'm a nice neighbor, but, you know, I just go wherever I want. <laughs> so Don't get shot, right? <laughs> yeah, no, don't be shy. We're we're all family here. But, um, yeah, I've never found him. So I'm, I'm the question remains, something happened inside of the pen before mm-hmm. he got out. Um, Mm -hmm. now if it was the older chickens, you know, there's a pecking order in there, Fran, it's just the circle of life. So maybe he was getting picked on, pecked on, I don't know. Or maybe one of the outdoor cats just like reached up under the fence and grabbed him. So we don't know, but you know what? I feel terrible saying this. At least it was one of the ones I thought might be a rooster. (laughs) At least it wasn't a hen. I don't know. You're a, you're a, a, a rooster chauvinist. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I just, um, I, it's, I'm not anti-rooster. We have one, but you know, they don't really cohabitate very well. And, um, I, it's, it's funny because in the past, anytime like a chicken has died, um, it, it happens, you know, you injure a leg, yeah. you're gone. And, um, you know, usually I get all sad because they like, have I only thought that was, I only thought that was horses. You injure a leg and you're gone. Yeah, no, you chickens, chickens can too. be lame too, apparently. But mm. um, I think a lot of it has to do with being mated too aggressively. That's a giant rooster we have. A giant rooster. So I don't know. I actually like, maybe I have more farmer in me than I thought because I'm, you know. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm you do. Talist and like, yeah, that's just farm life for you. So, you know. So I'm going to ride by and see you in overalls, right? Pitchfork. <laughs> I do. I have purple overalls. <laughs> of course you do. Of, of course, course you purple. do. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm glad that we can start the day lighthearted because, dude, this case, we're going. It's very tough. Yeah, it's this tough. is part two today of the case that we delivered to you guys last week, which was the 1980 case of Melvin Crow um, shooting at um, and hitting, unfortunately. Miguel, Miguel. Marcellus, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, in 1980, in Plumbing, Georgia, for Scythe County, and uh, Fran was one of the agents on that case. She she arrested Melvin in that case, but this story with Melvin's claims of being related to May Crow. Today, we're going to go way back in time to 1912, and then we're going to come back into the late 80s and discuss um, how all of this came to a head down in Cumming. So. If you're ready, Fran, let's uh, let's examine this this very troubling um, troubling history is what it is. Yes, and history is messy. You know, it's and it's these details are are sad, and the way that people are treated is disgusting and despicable. But like we said last week, you know, we we have to understand the past in order to know where we're going and what we need to improve on and you know, how the world should look. It's up to us as human beings to determine the shape of the world by the way that we treat others and, you know, sharing kindness. So as difficult as it is to discuss these things, you know, let's just hold it as a reminder that we can we can do better and we can be better. That's true because, you know, we can't go back and change history, but people have to think of it every day that you live, you're making history. Yeah. So if you don't live in fear and hatred and teach that to your children uh, so that they live in fear and hatred, then life is going to be a better place. Because if 
the history we're making right now is what things have been happening in the past right. is only going to perpetuate itself. Yeah. And that's hey. what we want to stop. And you're totally right about teaching hate. It's, it's that's like, mm. you know, in psychology, they discuss um, the cycle of abuse, you know, and, and breaking free of that and knowing that, you know, you are worthy and you, you know, you don't deserve that treatment. You don't have to accept it and you don't have to treat other people that way. So you know, breaking the cycle of teaching hate is the same thing as breaking a cycle of abuse. Because I think that when you teach hate, that is, that's a form of abuse, you know, you're stripping somebody of their opportunity to, to love. So, um, you know, we're going to start in September the 5th, 1912. This is really, there was two incidents that happened that created the, uh, the storm that happened at Forsyth Canyon. Uh, Ellen Grice uh, was 22, uh, white female. She resided in Forsyth County. She alleged that uh, a black man entered her home at night while her husband was gone and um, was, in, was in the bedroom. Now, there's two accounts. One says that he was in the bed, and another account says he was in the bedroom. Um she, of course, reported it. Uh, when her husband returned, he was away. Uh, they began a search for the man uh, who, att- who allegedly attempted to assault her. Uh, the search party captured a Tony Howell, age 22, and accused him of being the attacker. Now, she didn't allege he attacked her. She didn't allege that in any report that I found. She only says he was in the bedroom. Okay, and then the other report says he was in the bed. Okay. So it's mixed mixed information. Well, shouldn't have been in there, sir. I mean, that, your that's true. probably are not good either way. So strike one. So um, Sheriff Bill Reed was the sheriff at the time in Forsyth County. He also arrested, besides Tony Howe, he arrested four others. Isaiah Perkle, 35, Joe Rogers, 24, Fate Chester, and Johnny Bates as accomplices. Now, I don't know if you could get all four of these guys in the same bedroom, but there's no information of how these guys are accomplices. Yes, I wondered the same thing in my research because it didn't say anything about any of these guys being in the home. Um, so I don't I don't know, but this is this is how story the history is written. So we're gonna roll yes. the um they were, of course, arrested and taken to the uh, Forsyth County Jail. I think originally, uh, first of all, a local black preacher by the name of Reverend Grant, uh, Grant Smith, he goes to the jailhouse after listening to the news of the arrest. Okay. Uh, he comments to, you know, the public that uh, Ellen Grice uh is a quote sorry white woman unquote uh this is this is information i'm i'm uh reading from the atlanta history center account uh a mob had grown uh a white mob had grown to the size of a few hundred and they were worried that there was going to be a lot more turmoil in you know at the courthouse uh where you know, they were housing the uh, perpetrators. These five guys, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
So the Reverend actually was beaten, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Well, you know, I wish he hadn't said that. It came off a a bit callous and it really, it's sparking a fire. This whole, this is an explosive situation. I, I can't stress that enough. Well, the white community uh, gave chase to the to the other black people that came into town to support to the to support the to support the reverend and uh, the mayor of the town, Charlie Harris, attempted to calm the public, you know, encouraging them to, to go back to their homes. And um, he contacted the governor and asked the governor to send the national guard to break up the count the crowd. Uh, Governor Brown deploys the closest National Guard unit. The members of the Guard travel by car from Marietta, and uh, the crowd finally dispersed. The second incident that you're going to talk about is uh, the incident on September the 9th of 1912 involving May Crow, who is the distant relative of Melvin Crow. Exactly. So, you know, Melvin Crow had made a statement after the attempted murder of um, Miguel Marcellus that something along the lines of, you know, he he was trying to perform his own sort of vigilante justice for his distant relative, May Crow, and just had a deep-seated hatred of people of color. And so, you know, this is this is a, a racist act and a, and a hate crime um, that all stems from this this situation in 1912. So... Amid the accusations by Ellen Grice and then the subsequent beating of Reverend Grant Smith, um, there was a woman, age 18, um, of Oscarville, which is, Fran, you educated me on Oscarville, right where Melvin's house was in in the 1980 case. Oscarville was one of several towns that was elected to um, be purchased by the state. And have all the residents move out. And Mm -hmm. that's how we created Lake Lanier was by flooding these like lower seated towns and damming the river so that we would have this at Lake Lanier is humongous. It's like 900 and some odd miles of shoreline, tons of inlets and coves. I mean, we're at the lake almost every week, but um, yeah, huge lake. So that's where Oscarville is. It's right at the, um, the line of Forsyth and Hall County. But Macro is of Oscarville. She's 18 years old and she goes missing. And September 9th, a search party discovers her. She's unconscious, but she's still alive. And sadly, she's had her throat slashed and her, um, you know, she's in bad shape and she's discovered in the woods near her home. So there was a pocket mirror discovered um, in the woods, but we don't know exactly how close it was to her body. Um, the Crow's family, um, they take her in and they're trying desperately to save her life. She's unconscious and, and unable to to tell them what exactly has happened. So, of course, as it happens, um, people gather to see what's happening. Word spreads fast in a small town, as you know. And um, a group of Black teenagers um, gather at Pleasant Grove Church, which is down the road. So among them um, is Ernest Knox. Knox is 17 years old at this time, and he's new to the area. They're some of the only Black individuals living in this area of Forsyth County at the time. So um, according to the census in 1910, in this area, only 37 of the 513 residents uh, were people of color. So 
A community member ends up approaching uh, young Mr. Knox and asks if uh, he owns the mirror. And I'm I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you just pick one guy out of a crowd. I mean, how how does this happen? I don't understand. This is like a stroke of luck or it's just a weird twist of fate. So somebody approaches Knox and asks him about the mirror that was found near May's, um, May's body. And Knox admits to owning it. So he admits eventually to being the one to attack May Crow. And of course, following this confession, you can assume that the white residents turn him over to the authorities and things start to get pretty ugly from here. So he's taken to the Fulton County jail, which is referred to as the tower. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the word is spread among the locals that he has accomplices, just like in the case a few days ago um, with Miss Grice. So this was something that Fran and I were shocked about. Um, one of these articles that we found in the Morning Call newspaper from September 11th, 1912, says, Negro suspect lynched in jail. Mob of 2,000 citizens drag naked body through the streets. Georgia is excited. Poor choice of words, but I'm trying to just chalk it up to that's how they talked in those times. Um, Georgia shouldn't be excited ever to see any kind of violence, but we're now on September 10th. And um, as I've alluded, the shit really hits the fan here. Rob, Sheriff Reed, yeah, Sheriff Reed left uh, the jail, and uh, leaving the jail, a deputy uh, came in to protect the jail and and the prisoner, Rob Edwards. Um, later that day, a lynch mob attacked the jail, and the men gained entry, dragging Edwards from his cell. Two thousand white men, it says. Mm-hmm, yeah, they hung him from a telephone pole in the town square he was actually shot to death before being hanged and the atlanta georgian a newspaper reported that the corpse was mangled into something hardly resembling a human form just disgusting it's, it's just, just disgusting it's just unbelievable i mean first of all please don't go attack anybody you know that was you, the crime should never have been committed in the first place, but there are, there's a reason that we have a justice system and these vigilante acts just are, are not good for anybody. Um, you know, taking the law into your own hands, I don't recommend it. <laughs> so this incites, you know, 2000 men swarm the jail. I mean, this is a huge riot and it's, it's terrifying. So there's, um, Three more black residents arrested um, concerning the assault on May Crow, um, Jane Daniel, Oscar Daniel, and Ed Collins, and they're all transported to the tower as well. In the aftermath of the lynching, um, white residents start terrorizing the black community, and they're threatening arson, um, burning churches, distributing notices, you know, for encouraging them to flee, raiding black homes, damaging buildings. Um, It's... People, People are were just forced with their clothes. I mean, they packed. It didn't even get pack a bag, right? And they left everything to get out of Dodge City, so to speak. I mean, right. this I mean, was you're, the Wild West. You're leaving behind your home and all of your belongings because because one man committed mm-hmm. a crime and two thousand men could not contain themselves. You know, the actions of one, <laughs> Fran, do not condemn 
the rest. And and this is just a, a, a sordid tale of people getting ahead of themselves. So this is how this is how the the racial tension in Forsyth County truly began. Um, unfortunately, come September, um, Macro passed away because of her injuries. So she had she had a long road uh, of recovery and, and unfortunately it didn't happen, but she never, she never even was able to speak to who her assailant was. So we don't even know that, that the right person was charged with this. We don't even. This was not the kind of investigation that would happen today. Yeah, not at all. So. Um, She's buried over there in the, in the local churchyard. She's buried in the same churchyard um, where young Mr. Knox was, you know, joining the crowd to see what was going on with this young woman over at uh, Pleasant Grove Church. But um, yeah, so here we are now. Fast forward to October. They're bringing these men up from the tower, as it's known, to camp. We have an incredible photo of the accused prisoners in Buford before their trial. We've got um, the two the two Daniels, uh, Tony Howell, Isaiah, Isaiah Perkle, Ed Collins, and Ernest Knox all here in this photo. And uh, this is something that we need to share on social media. It's, it's a powerful picture. Knox and Daniel were convicted of rape and murder yeah. by an all-white jury of 11 farmers and one night watchmen. Yep. And they were sentenced to death by hanging scheduled for October 25th. State law prohibited public hangings at the time. So the scheduled execution was only to be viewed by the victim's family, a minister, and an official law officer. There was actually a a 15-foot privacy fence. Yeah, the gallows were to be built off the square in Cunning. A fence was erected around the gallows. It was burnt down the night before the execution. A crowd was estimated between 5,000 and 8,000 gathered to watch what became a public hanging of two youths. That's unbelievable. And And at this this time, that was half of the population of the county. The county population at that time was about 12,000. Yeah. And by the end of 1912, most of the people of color in Forsyth County were forced to leave. And migrated to, you know, surrounding counties to to start their lives over. And this is the beginning of Forsyth County, Georgia, becoming a sundown community. Mm-hmm. And a sundown community means that, yeah, we, we still need Black people to work here, um, but you're not allowed here after dark. And in some reports that I've read, Fran, the GBI was chaperoning um, Black workers to and from you know, they're, they're different jobs. Um, a lot of them in chicken factories, like the Tyson chicken plant was located there. Um, just to make sure that no additional violence ensues. And, and this carries on. Forsyth County is a largely white county until the eighties. And actually, I think we touched last week on that episode about Melvin, that there was like one black person living in the county at one point in time, only one. Mm-hmm. One of the um, one of the reports I read said that um, 
at that particular time, and, and this is interesting, very interesting. Um, you know, there was a there was a large anti-black campaign that was widespread across the North Georgia mountains to include Forsyth uh, only after towns in Union County, and I talked about Union County earlier in the you earlier did. episode. Yeah, Fannin, Gilmer, and Dawson County were also included in that in that uh, scenario. Um, one of the things that um, was it was important to know there were two groups of totally white supremacists known at the time. One of them was called the Night Riders, and then the other, of course, was the, the Ku Klux Klan. So those were the two most uh, prominent uh, white supremacy type um, groups that were uh, around at the time that these, these um, incidents happened. You know, Danielle, one of the things I think um, we need to clarify, and I, you know, I'm a bit of a history buff myself. I did a little research on uh, ethnic cleansing campaigns, and in a way, you know, Forsyth County had their own ethnic cleansing. This is what they wanted to do. Yeah. One of the things that we didn't really mention was after these episodes that happened in 1912, many, uh, many, many Black families lost their homesteads yeah. things that they had worked and earned and had land uh, property in their name they lost them they were paid pennies for these some didn't even be were even paid um and uh left the county so uh, a lot of this property was um taken over by other white families of course and um reparations have, have never been made to those families. I know the, oh. um, the King Center, uh, and there's a, another notation in uh, one of the, one of the, um, I think it's the Atlanta History Center, mm -hmm. says that they have, uh, if somebody is listening and they want to go to that site, go to the Atlanta History Center site, and they, they have information about if you're a a descendant of one of those families, they want to hear from you so that you can join a list of people that they're trying to uh, make a record of. And, you know, I think it's almost, um, I think it's almost God's way of uh, taking care of business after the fact, so to speak, that he flooded the land that the white people took from the black people. I mean, I know that's a kind of an awkward way to say it, but it's like, you want to take people's land that they worked and earned uh, and through the sweat of their brow mm -hmm. and tried to make a living and live in peace. And yes, there were a few bad people that did bad things, but a few, few thousand, many thousand white people, you know, did a wrong thing. Well, and so, I mean, to, to, to take that a step further, Fran, the land that was stolen from these black families in the early 1900s in Forsyth County had previously mm -hmm. been stolen from Native Americans. That's right. We I have a that here. we have a, a rich history of greed, um, you know, empowering people to do horrendous things. So the so the flooding of the lake over this land is almost to me the way it should have been. Yeah, it's almost it's very <laughs> symbolic in a way, yeah, you know. It is. Anyway, one of the, uh, one, I think it's interesting to, to note that um, the ethnic cleansing campaigns that 
have been in our history started as early as 146 BC. Wow. Uh, the Battle of Carthage. Uh, yeah. It was between uh, Carthage, which is now Tunisia, and the Roman Republic. Uh, and um, it was uh, the, the, the city of Carthage was completely destroyed. Uh, the, the Romans broke through the city wall, and after hours upon hours of house-to-house fighting, the Carthaginians surrendered, and an estimated 50,000 surviving inhabitants were sold into slavery. The city was leveled, and the land surrounding Carthage was eventually declared public land and was shared between local farmers and Roman and Italian ones. Well, well that's, that's interesting. That's the same yeah. thing that happened with Lake Lanier. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that interesting? Bananas. So then we go into the Middle Ages. Of course, William the Conqueror conquered uh, devastated northern England. And uh, during his campaign between 1069 and 1070, uh, and then we move on down to uh, 1492, uh, the Renaissance period. We have um, religious persecution of up to a quarter million Jews in Spain were converted to Catholicism, and, and those who refused were expelled. Uh, between 40,000 and 70,000 were expelled. And um, that's another interesting part of the Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, we moved down to the French and Indian War, 1755 to 1764. Then we have um, on May the 26th of 1830, we just talked about this, President Andrew Jackson of the United States signed the Indian Removal Act, which resulted in the Trail of Tears. If anybody in this world has a beef, it's our Native Americans. Uh, rightly so. I mean, they were forced to move out of land that rightly belonged to them yeah. because of us. Yeah. Because of us, our greed and are not wanting to share with them you know we forced them on that trail of tears i mean if, if i came to your house and knocked on your door and was like gtfo this is mine now i mean that's i can't mm -hmm. even imagine it, it's just beyond me i i fail to comprehend fran how how we continue to think that you can perceive somebody as less than or that we are entitled to things that aren't ours. I don't understand. It's, it's happened through history. 19, in the 1900s, the Balkan Wars, 1920s, Greece uh, and Turkey, same thing, and ethnic cleansing. 400,000 Muslims left Greece. Uh, there were over 750,000 victims of genocide. Uh, and in, in uh, the second Japanese war, in which the Imperial Japanese Army invaded China in the 1930s now, this is not even 100 years away, uh, 100 years ago, more than 2.7 million Chinese were killed, uh, civilians and military personnel alike. Then we move on, uh, 1940s. Um, of course, we have World War II, uh, the Nazi Germany invasion, and then we have uh, we go into the 50s with um, the Jewish exodus of, from Muslim countries, and uh, there's been over 850,000 Jews of the Islamic world 
that have have um, moved and departed into places that um, welcomes their Jewish Jewish businesses and lifestyles. So that goes on through the 70s and the 80s and different, you know, s smaller wars and uh, that we hear about just basically through the news and, you know, occasionally on the on the newspaper, all the way down to, to what we have now in um, in uh, 2020 with um, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. I yeah. mean, there's lots of them. So this is not a new, you know, part of history. Uh, it just seems like it's close to home because it's our, our neighbor. It's our back door. Yeah. I mean, this this history is extremely local to us. And, you know, I mean, we lived, like I said in the last episode, we lived in Forsyth County and not growing up in the South. I had absolutely no knowledge that these things happened in such close proximity to today, you know, in my lifetime. It's it's harrowing. But you know, we have to just continue to make progress. And we keep saying over and over, you know, we have to learn from history. So mm -hmm. let's learn. Finally, if we could just learn. Fran, <laughs> I cannot believe what we're about to discuss because this has to be one of the scariest situations you've ever been in in your life. It's 1987 and there are plans for a march to occur. Uh, civil rights march on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, so that's in January, of course, in Forsyth January County. January 24th, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Hosea Williams, a civil rights activist and politician, is helping to lead a group of about 75 marchers through the county. And um, this is January 17th. But the march was disrupted by a group of about 400 white supremacists and members of the KKK. And they injured several marchers, including Hosea Williams. So law enforcement told the organizers that everything was getting out of hand. Nobody's safety could be guaranteed. And the march was called off. Eight Klansmen are arrested. And um, a counter demonstration happens at the courthouse. And um, the white supremacists consider that a victory. So there's national and international attention brought to the county. And... Williams and other activists decide that they need to try again. So another march is scheduled for the following weekend on January 24th. And this time about 20,000 participants are there, um, including several notable politicians and activists, Senators Sam Nunn and Weish Fowler, um, John Lewis and other leaders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the NAACP. Um, there was only about 75 law enforcement officers present the previous weekend, but this March sees the deployment of 3,000 law enforcement officers, including 1,000 members of the Georgia National Guard. And uh, again, white supremacists are going to come and counter-demonstrate. And there were a few incidences of violence, uh, about 64 people arrested. And uh, Fran, you were there. Can you... Tell us what your experience was like on that day. How did this come to be for you? Well, it just it just come to me. Um, one of the things, yes, I was there. Uh, I was an agent out of the Region Eight office and assigned to go to the to the second march because uh, we knew there was going to be trouble and trouble in the form of, you know, uh, 
many KKK, many outspoken, probably many hidden guns, um, maybe Molotov cocktails being thrown, fires started, who knows? Um, we didn't know how organized these individuals would be in different parts of the um, of the area of the of the march. And um, the squad that I was on, we were basically marching and kind of protecting down the downtown area around the courthouse. Yeah. And I do remember the buses coming in from Atlanta and um, the count the protesters and coming off of the buses and uh, with their signs and starting the parade, so to speak, starting the march. And uh, I remember very specifically my supervisor at that time. Um, uh, he came over the radio and you know made a couple comments about okay get get ready because the buses are here get ready you know that kind of thing. And, and at, we all at this point in time, are you guys are you guys in like full tactical gear? Oh yeah, yeah, full tactical gear, and um, some people had. Um, you know, shotguns. We I didn't have a shotgun. I just had a handgun, and um, we didn't even have mace back then. We didn't have any mace on us, but of course, hand handcuffs, and we had zip ties. Um, so uh, and bulletproof vests, of course, and we had you know hard hard helmets with uh, plastic shields that came out across. So when that way, the uh, supervisor came over the radio and said shields down shields down and then he started to alerting different squads by by a badge number the supervisor of those squads would go to specific areas um off the square oh and we knew that there was trouble i knew that there was trouble uh just behind the square because they were calling for additional squads to go back and help them because there was there was fighting going on and they were making arrests but uh, overall, I don't remember any, you know, there wasn't any fire started. There wasn't any Molotov cocktails thrown. Um, I do believe people were arrested that have web had weapons. Yeah. So um, it was a lot of eyes on people that were, um, you know, robed. And uh, at that time, there was a state law that you couldn't be masked. They, we did have the law that you were no longer allowed to be masked, like the the KKK could not wear a full cover mask. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, uh, that also kind of uh, helped us identify people that we knew would cause trouble. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you did know some of these people. I mean, maybe you didn't run into yeah. all of them <laughs> on this day, but um, certainly some of the groups that you and I have discussed here on the pod and, and off the record, um, you know, certainly some of those folks were present. I mean, because people came from all over for this. This was a huge deal. I mean, we're talking 20,000 people in downtown coming. That's right. It's and the, uh, after the actual march itself, I mean, no one got killed. No one was really, there were, there were several arrests, but, uh, overall with the, the amount of people that were there and the amount of hostility and anger, um, I would say it was fairly well maintained by the amount of guard presence. Um, the march resulted in an actual litigation that um, 
resulted in the financial ruin of the KKK in Georgia um, and in uh, a, a um, legal dispute, McKinney versus the Southern White Knights in 1988, the January 17th marchers won a $1 million verdict. The court forced the invisible empire of the KKK which is, was affiliated, of course, with the KKK. The Southern White Knights is an affiliation of the KKK. Oh, okay. To forfeit their assets and dissolve. Their office equipment was later dis distributed, distributed to the NAACP community offices, which is kind of interesting. You know, there's a couple of quotes here in an article from the Washington Post. Um, among the marchers that day, were a Japanese Buddhist monk from Albany, New York. And he's quoted as saying, we don't agree with racism, that's all. Um, there was a Pakistani-born law school applicant from Roswell, Georgia, in attendance that day, who told the newspaper, it's quite an experience for me to watch what the American experience is all about. And I think that quote hit me really hard because... This is not to me what what I want to define the American experience as. So mm -hmm. just this perception that this was okay or tolerated on any level is is sickening. But I hope we can perceive, you know, the events of of these marches as a win. Um in the respect that things are continuing to evolve and change. We we do see diversity in Forsyth County now, which, I mean, please, can we see it everywhere? But one thing that's really interesting about these marches is that actually Oprah Winfrey got involved in this and mm -hmm. brought her production team to coming to broadcast an episode of her talk show. So she, she interviewed some residents about that and, um, you know, I mean, this was this was international news. This was huge. And, and just to imagine that this happened here in our backyard. In 1990, uh, I got promoted to assistant special agent in charge. And um, then I was asked to come to Atlanta to work from out of the Gainesville office. I left Gainesville and went to Atlanta. And I was assigned to work. I was in charge of the anti-terrorist squad. And the responsibilities of that squad was to maintain peace and oversee uh, KKK rallies. We went to several. And let me tell you, um, there is an intense um, feeling in the air when you go to these things. Again, full riot gear, you know, um, all the accoutrements that you need, guns, etc. And the purpose of the of going is to try to keep peace between these two groups. You have the protesters and you have the counter-protesters. So if the KKK has filed a um, something with the town, some type of, you know, they they filed they want to have a parade and they've got access to have a parade and and they've given had permission to, to have a parade in the town. So um, the town grants it because they don't want to be sued. So the town grants the parade. So they, we are called to keep peace. Uh, the counter 
protesters. We try to keep them in one area. Once the parade ends, there's a parade route, which is tried to limited. Once the parade ends, usually the KKK will get up and on a podium and, you know, go into their speech, their epitaphs and their, you know, their white supremacy issues and this and that. And that all of that creates the rhetoric for the counter protesters to yell back, you know, their, their rhetoric. And that's where the anger and the frustration and the, the uh, violence starts to get a little bit hotter, of course. So uh, what I have found in the, in the several KKK rallies that I supervised and, and oversaw was that at both of these, at the actual, during the KKK rally themselves in the parades, you have fathers, sons, women in the parade with children, okay? So they are passing that. What did we say earlier about hate being taught? It's learned. That's exactly what they're doing. They are training their children to make to, to for let them to believe that it's okay to to hate somebody just to fear them because of their skin color which is totally wrong and then you have the counter protesters that just merely want to say look we don't believe what you're saying and we're here to you know protest against that yeah so um that's where you know um when we were there, we had to maintain level heads and try to keep the peace, try to keep them calm, pull out people. I remember pulling out a young man. He had to be, he only had to be 16 or 17 years old. who was fitting, was uh, through, just through verbal, um, his, his verbalization of his, uh, his rhetoric about uh, white people I uh, just had to pull him out of the out of the out of the parade and said, "That's enough. You're done." <laughs> and grabbed him by the, the nap of the neck and handed him off to another guy. I said, "He's going to jail. Take, <laughs> just take him. I, uh, he's not going to create a fire here." <laughs> I mean, it's it's too bad you couldn't have scooped up more of him, Fran. And I mean, but you know, you have to let them. You have to let them both. Yeah, because that's. That's our democracy. Well, that's I mean, America. That's how we are. Yeah. That's America. And um, yeah, it's it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, you know, but, but not I, to the point where the people are going to be injured or people right. are going to be hurt. Or somebody's going to be shot right. and killed over, over, over words yeah. and over philosophies. It's not, I mean, that's war. Right. That's what war is. Right. So we didn't want war at parades and counter protesters getting hurt or protesters getting hurt either one but an uh, interesting part of my career yeah yeah did not very... like it at all did no. not like it at all i'm and sure I those always were not some of your longest memories I, you know racking that shotgun does get your attention oh yeah and i mean shields down yeah i mean that made every hair on my body stand up yeah. it's it's crazy some of the things that you've seen, Fran. But again, yeah, I, I think about it now, you know, and everybody my age, I'll, I'll soon be 70. Everyone my age looks back at their young life and says, I can't believe I did that. Right. And I was like, did I do that? Yeah, I guess I did. Right. But when you're young, you don't have uh, 
You don't have the fear of falling and injuring your knee or, you know, I've had guns put in my face. I've been shot at, you know, <laughs> things like that. I mean, oh, death just, threats. No biggie. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, I don't think of, I didn't think about it at the time. I guess if I did, I, I wouldn't have been an agent because, yeah. you know, it, it was one of those things you just didn't think about. You just went and did your job and do you, you, think, you wouldn't have been able to do it. And, and I mean, I, I suppose maybe this is a bit philosophical, but is that innate or can you teach that? Like, do some people just not have what it takes to be an agent of that stature or can yes. you... Can you train yourself mentally to prepare for those? I'm, I know that there's so much training that goes into um, being a police officer, uh, uh, any first responder, but, you know, are there people who just aren't cut out? I think it, this is my opinion. Now, I think that the just the average everyday kind of person uh that just has a very normal everyday kind of life i don't think it's it's the kind of uh, career that they should choose yeah i think that you have to have um i think you have to have some had some kind of exposure to it in some way or have had some event happen to you where you either observe observe something or you have something that's innate in your nature that says this is not right I want to help. I'm going to get trained. I'm going to learn what to do. I'm going to go to the school for criminal justice. And they just have this drive. It's it's something in you that drives you to want to do this. Yeah. And if you don't have that drive, and it's not a bad drive, you know, some people say that some some cops, and it's true, some cops are overzealous. But if you don't have that desire that inherent desire, and I will say it's inherent. If you don't have that inherent desire to help people in a good way, then you can't do this job. Yeah. Well, I would. You know, I think just, uh, you know, you might just go to the grocery store and sell Cokes and peanuts or something. You know, it's just not that kind of thing where somebody can just learn it from a book going to training. Yeah. I think that you have to really want to be able to do it. Well, I assume, and, you know, pardon me for making assumptions about you, but I think that from the way you just described it, you had both of those elements. You had exposure because your father was a law enforcement officer. And and you do have just a deep-rooted desire to help people. It's just who you are. So you had... And I also think that people have been victims. Well, I think people that have been the victims of crime not for retaliation purposes, but to try to better the system or try to learn prevent more it about from happening system. to other people. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I say it a lot, but Fran, you are a badass. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't feel that way. I could have been hurt many times. Yeah. I think back about, I think back about times I've been on search warrants and I, I remember this is, uh, we'll end, we'll end this episode with this. I, we went to um, a, a little town called East Denali, and we were going to do a search. We were doing a search warrant. It was still dark, and uh, we went to the house. Uh, it was for drugs, and uh, we knew that the man was living there, and uh, we went in through the basement, and 
We knocked, yelled out, nobody, nobody in. I turned and there was something pointing what I thought was a gun at me. And I almost pulled the trigger and he was in front. This figure was in front of a double glass door with the moon lit behind him. And it, that's what I saw. Okay. I turned to my right and my gun was out and I almost pulled the trigger. And then I looked again and you know what it was? A full statue, armed metal statue of a man. No. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I almost shot him and he would have fell through that glass door and I would have been on suspension. Oh my God. Well, um, and, and I, mean, I have been on suspension for shooting. I'll tell you that. Wow. I, uh, well, first of all, you just, you don't see. Uh, it and that's day. another, that's another story for another day. God almighty. <laughs> Fran, you've, you've seen a lot in your 69 years on this planet and as always, I mean, and I know the listeners say the same, but so grateful to hear these stories from you. It's it's so interesting. And, you know, I'm proud that we were able to dive a bit deeper into such an important piece of our local history over these past couple of weeks. And yeah. the role you played, you know, you may feel like you were just one person in a sea of 20,000, but it takes the bravery and you know, the right attitude and the desire to, to improve our circumstances, um, to make any difference. And, and you made a difference that day just by your presence. So thanks for always doing the right thing, Fran. Well, thank you. And I, I, uh, I do want to say that, uh, as you're saying that I miss a dear friend that just passed away. He was my mentor. Uh, and he was with us the day in Forsyth County, and he was at, he was one of the ones that actually got into one of the uh, the confrontations. His name was uh, Walt Brooks, and uh, he was a special agent in charge. And I met him in 1975, and he's the one that mentored me into coming on the GBI. He was a narcotics agent and was staying at my parents' motel. Wow. And uh, he recently passed away, and he's he left four sons and a beautiful wife. And um, I just remember hearing his voice on the radio. Wow. Well, we hope that he rests in peace and that his family heals in time. It's it's not easy, but what a legacy he's left behind for them to be so proud of. You know, we should strive to make our children proud as best we can. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Fran, for sharing with us. It's been uh, it's been a wild ride from the '80s to the early part of 1900s and and back to today. So, we will be back next week with another story about somebody doing something bad. Yes, ma'am. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then. Bye for now. And please behave. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by retired GBI agent Fran Wiley and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Follow our show on Facebook and Instagram at snowinthemountains.pod. Feel free to get in touch with us anytime at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. You can support our show with a quick rating or review and by listening weekly on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.